This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, we're looking this morning at verses 18 through 23. Romans 1, 18. Hear the word of God. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Let's pray. Father, we ask as we come to this sobering text this morning that you would, by your Spirit who inspired it, speak to us from it, teach us those things you would have us to know. And Father, we pray that you would use your word this morning to accomplish the purpose you have for it, for each one of us, in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives, as we live before you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. The idea of the Lord being a God of wrath is not a popular one. One of the reasons, I think, that Jonathan Edwards' well-known sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, is at one and the same time so fascinating and yet for many so repulsive is how vividly Edwards' depicts the wrath of God toward sinners. In fact, so unpopular, so distasteful to human nature is this idea of God as a God of wrath, that in fact there was one person who actually saw fit to remove the words of God here, simply to make it read, the wrath is revealed from heaven. Now, that was not a 19th century liberal German scholar. It was the second century heretic Marcion who uh, sought to distance God from this idea of wrath. So this distaste in human nature for the wrath of God is certainly not anything new, not something unique to our own time. 
But what matters here is not how we would like to think about God. What matters is who God is. What matters is how God has revealed himself to us to be. God is not a cafeteria where we pick and choose or reject those attributes about him that, on the one hand, uh, appeal to us, or on the other hand, we don't like. God is who he is, and our preferences will not change that. What does the Bible say? Well, it certainly says God is love. John tells us that. We see from page to page in the Scripture the, the mercy, the patience, the love, the grace of God. But the Bible also shows to us that God's wrath against human sin is a very real thing. Now, before Paul writes about God's wrath in these verses that we're looking at this morning, he writes in verses 16 and 17, as we saw last week, about the gospel. That the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That good news of God's mercy and sending a Savior who loved us, who died for us, bearing God's judgment against our sin, judgment that you and I deserved, that this is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first, also the Greek, that the gospel reveals the righteousness of God for all who believe, a righteousness that God gives to us that we receive by faith. And then verse 18 begins with the word for, which connects it with verses 16 and 17. Now, exactly what the nature of that connection is, I want to save to explore in just a little while, not right now. But right now, what I want us to do at is look at what Paul teaches in verses 18 through 23 about God's wrath itself. Because as God's people, uh, as those who... Uh, who study and know God's word, we need to know what the Bible says about the wrath of God. But even if we're not God's people, we need to hear, especially those who are not God's people, need to hear what the Bible says about the wrath of God. Well, first place, we want to look at what it says about the reality of God's wrath. In verse 18, Paul writes, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. The reality of God's wrath is is assumed. It's clearly stated here that 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 wrath of God is revealed. Now, what is it? When we talk about God's wrath, what are we talking about? We tend to think of God in terms of ourselves. And God does reveal himself anthropomorphically. That is, he reveals himself in ways that are similar to who we are as humans. The Bible sometimes does this by way of metaphor. The arm of the Lord is not so short that it cannot save. Well, does God literally have an arm? No. God is a spirit, has not a body like men. Children's Catechism teaches us. Other than in Christ, and his arms were stretched out. Yes, and he saved us there. But God in and of himself, apart from the incarnation, does not have an arm. And when the scriptures in the Old Testament speak of that, they're speaking of God in terms that we understand. We use our arms to do things, to accomplish things. And so it describes God's saving work in terms of his arm reaching out to to save his strong arm. 
But when it speaks of the wrath of God, uh, we do tend to understand that in terms of our own wrath, in terms of our own anger. And that's helpful, but it can also be unhelpful. When we think about God's wrath, we need to be careful that we don't think about God's wrath in terms of our own sinful anger. The problem with anger for us, at least for me, is I tend to get angry about the things I really shouldn't and tend not to get angry about the things I should be angry about. What tends to make me angry is what slights me, what hurts my pride, what what threatens my agenda, my priorities, me, 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 me. We tend to think of God's wrath in a similar way. And when I get angry, it's not always sin. We can be angry and yet not sin, but very often our anger leads to sin. Why? Because we tend to lose control, because we tend to do things, we tend to say things that we ought not to. And our anger is such a volatile and powerful emotion that it can lead to sin. It can lead to hurting people around us. And we tend to think of God's wrath as being like that, sort of a divine cosmic temper tantrum because he's not getting his way. By the way, God always gets his way. Well, if we are not to think of God's wrath in those terms, then how are we to think of what it means here when it says the wrath of God? Well, I do think the connection with our anger can be helpful when we think of human anger at its best, when it is a reaction to that which is wrong, to that which is unjust, to that which is an affront to God himself. Not so much that selfish, I don't get my way kind of anger, as it, as it is anger that this is not right. This is not just. This is not how things should be. An anger that leads to doing good rather than an anger that simply leads to lashing out. And God's anger, the wrath of God, I think is best understood when we think about it as similar to the best that human anger might bring instead of the worst. God's wrath is his revulsion against that which contradicts his own holiness. And so we need to understand it in that way. It's God's reaction, his offense at, and his reaction to human rebellion. Those things that contradict his holiness, that contradict what is right and true and good. You see this demonstrated vividly in Jesus' own life. You know, when he was unjustly tried, when he was being mocked and tortured and crucified, even when there might have been encouragement to lash out as Peter pulls out his sword and so forth, Jesus doesn't do it. In fact, his response is gracious. Lord, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. But... When the court of the Gentiles and the temple became a marketplace, this bazaar and this money changing and selling and all this going on, that the one place the Gentiles had to come to the temple to pray was, was occupied. Otherwise, Jesus was angry, and his anger is demonstrated in clearing that place out that defiles his father's house. And so I think that illustrates something of the nature of God's wrath. It's analogous to ours at its best, although it's beyond that. There's no taint of sin in it at all. And notice he says it's revealed from heaven. I think that's just a way of emphasizing that this really is wrath from God, that its source is that of heaven itself, 
just to emphasize the seriousness of it, the weightiness of it. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Now, what does it mean when he says it's revealed? Notice present tense. It is revealed. We could also say it is being revealed. Now, God's wrath, certainly from Paul's standpoint, was a past tense thing. There were demonstrations of God's wrath and judgment, certainly in the Old Testament. I think one particularly dramatic example, Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, other examples uh, following from Jeremiah, the passage we read, the, the, uh, the conquest and destruction and occupation of Jerusalem by the Babylonians and the exile. That was an expression of God's wrath. We tend to think of God's wrath as, as future, and that's true. One day there will be that day of judgment, that day of reckoning, uh, and that is a future display, a yet-to-come display of the wrath of God. But Paul says the wrath of God is revealed. It is something that is going on, even as Paul wrote, and I think it's reasonable to say even as we read this text, even as we live today, the wrath of God is revealed. Now, I want to save that, not explore that too much, because I think Paul really gets into that in verses 24 and following, of, of showing how God's wrath is being revealed. Um, but sufficient, uh, suffice it to say for now that it is true that even in our daily lives now, as in Paul's, we are seeing the wrath of God revealed. And we'll just leave it at this. Sin is often its own punishment. Sin is often its own judgment. And with that sort of as a foretaste of uh, what's to come in chapter 1, we will move on from there. But it is revealed from heaven. And then we see the objects of his wrath in the second part of verse 18. What is it revealed against? Well, it's revealed against us. Against man. Against people. Against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Men there, of course, generic. People. Uh, against people on this earth, against us in our sinfulness. If we had not sinned, if we had no sin, then God's wrath would not be directed against us. But it's precisely against us in our sinfulness. He uses the terms against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Some have tried to pin down specific meanings for those two terms. I think that's trying to parse it a little too finely. I think Paul just repeats that for rhetorical emphasis, ungodliness, unrighteousness. There's some distinction there, certainly not conforming to the character of God, uh, acting wrongly with injustice. But they both are just ways of describing sinful behavior. And God's wrath is revealed against man in his sinfulness. It's also revealed against us in our suppression of the truth who by their unrighteousness, in our sinfulness, suppress the truth. Now, I think that's a good rendering of the word. It has the idea of to hold back or to, to hold on to. Uh, some have suggested that the sin here is that of hindering the spread of the truth, which I think would be encompassed in suppressing the truth. But I think that the, the basic meaning, what Paul is saying here, is certainly we try to suppress the truth of God from going out but we also suppress the truth of God within. Suppressing, stuffing, stifling that awareness of who we are as moral creatures created in the image of God, accountable to our Creator, because that's very inconvenient to our desire to go out and live exactly as we please. 
So we, 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 we suppress it. We hold it down. We try not to hear it. I can't hear you, we say. Uh, sort of like Pinocchio and Jiminy Cricket, but far, far worse and far, far more, far, far more serious because we suppress in our unrighteousness that truth about who God is and about who we are that we don't want to hear that makes us uncomfortable. That is the object of God's wrath. We are in our sinfulness, in our suppression of his truth. We are under the wrath of God. As Paul used the expression in Ephesians 5, uh, we, prior to God's grace, were children of wrath. That is, under the wrath, under that just anger of God. The objects of his wrath, we are. But is that right? Well, Paul spends the rest of this passage, these next couple of verses, looking at the justice of God's wrath. Is God's wrath right? Some might argue, no. Who is he? I should be able to live the way I want to. He has no right to be angry at me. He made me this way to choose this and that. Well, Paul goes on then to defend the justice, the rightness of God's wrath in verses 19 and following. Let's look at what he says. Well, he says, first of all, God's wrath is just because he has revealed himself to us in creation. God has revealed himself to us in creation. Look at verse 19. God's attributes are revealed in what he's made. He says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. How so? Well, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So he's saying that that what we can know about God in creation is plain to us, that it reveals things that otherwise would be invisible to us, like God's eternal power, his divine nature, what he is, who he is uh, like. Earlier, uh, for the call to worship, Mike read from Psalm 19, verses 1 through 6, which speaks of this very thing, God making himself known to us in creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day, every day, pours out speech. Long before there was an internet, the creation was was bombarding us with information. Day after day after day, day to day pours out speech, information. Night to night reveals knowledge. The, the creation in daytime with all of its beauty, splendor, awesomeness, the, the, the night sky, the stars and the moon and their brilliance and beauty, information day by day, moment by moment about who God is and that he is there. Now, do we hear anything? Well, sometimes you hear the roar of the sea or, or a tornado, but verse 3 says, this is Psalm 19, verse 3, there's no speech. Literally, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. We don't literally hear a voice speaking. And yet communication uh, from creation could not be more clear. Their measuring line goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. No matter where you are in this globe, you are hearing daily, apart from words, but hearing nevertheless the testimony of God and who he is. 
have been clearly perceived, Paul says in Romans, ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. What's the end result of that? So that they are without excuse. We can't say, God, I didn't know. You didn't tell me. If only you had shown me. Because he has. Since the creation of the world, since the beginning of your life and mine, we have daily received information from this creation about who the true and living God is. Revealed in what he's made, leaving us without excuse. So God has revealed himself. He has given enough information about himself in creation to give us a sense of who he is. Right knowledge of him. And I think the rise of the new atheism to the contrary, the preponderance throughout history and around the world today of those who acknowledge the existence of God or a God or some sort of supreme being bears witness to the very truth of what Paul is saying. Why, if it's not true, why would so many people hold to that idea? Now, the majority does not make right. The majority doesn't make truth. But it's worth putting these two things together that Paul says here that creation testifies to the presence, the majesty, the glory of God, and that throughout history and around the world today, people acknowledge that this God exists, that this God is. They may not worship him. They may not serve him. They may be totally wrong about him. But they know he is there. Well, then that brings us to the the, the second uh, part of this section, and that is that while God has revealed himself in creation very plainly, man has rejected that revelation. In his sinfulness, we reject the truth about God that we see in creation. See this in verses 21 and 22, 23. He says in verse 21 that we knew God. For although they knew God... Now, I don't think Paul is saying they knew him in a saving sense in Christ. He's just reflecting on what he said. God has revealed himself plainly in creation. We're without excuse. Then he goes on to say, for although they knew God, we, we, we see God's revelation. We're aware of it. We can't help but see it. Though, although they knew God, he says we rejected God in our thinking. They did not honor him as God. Or give thanks to him. So some negatives. We didn't honor him. We don't acknowledge him. We don't give him the glory that's his. Nor did we give thanks to him. There's there's a total ingratitude here. Total refusal to give thanks to God. But, he says, they became futile in their thinking. Futile in their thinking. Futility is what happens when you try to function apart from reality. Futility is what happens when people make up the rules for themselves. When people try to live as God, as if God did not exist, as though He did not speak, as though we weren't made in a certain way. Futility is what happens when people try to live apart from the reality of God's existence. And people all around us are trying to do that even right now. The futility of their thinking. And the result of that is, He says, their foolish hearts were darkened. When you do that, there is a darkness that creeps over. Uh, instead of living in the light, you're living in the dark. You're clueless. There's a darkness intellectually. There's a darkness morally. There's certainly a darkness spiritually that, that creeps in as, as man rejects the knowledge of God and tries to live in his own, his own way and therefore finds futility and darkness. 
But then it even goes further than that. Uh, in verses 22, 23, claiming to be wise, they became fools. Just the sheer pretension involved. Man, in his mental uh, pride, claims to be wise. That it's wise to cast off the knowledge of God. That it's wise to reject God's laws. That it's wise to go my own ways. But what does Paul say? What does God say? Claiming to be wise, they became fools. It's interesting that that term pops up in a couple of other places uh, in Scripture. Psalm 14, 1, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. The atheist claims to be the height of wisdom to deny the existence of God. The Bible said it's the fool who says in his heart, there is no God. But we also claim to be wise religiously, you know, about God and professing to be wise as we make God in our own image, we become fools. And it affects not only our thinking, but our worship. Look at verse 23. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Now, when Paul writes that, he may have a a couple of uh, passages in mind. One might be Exodus 32. Uh, where Moses, you know, is up on the mountain and they make the golden calf. And inexplicably Aaron is involved in all of this. And here, here, O Israel, is your God who brought you out of Egypt. This image that God said, don't make images of me. And yet that's precisely what they did. He may, Paul also may have in mind here Jeremiah chapter 2. Uh, another passage, uh, close to the one we read earlier, but Not right there, a little before it, Jeremiah chapter 2. Listen to this, verse 11. As the Lord is taking his people to task for their turning from him, he says, has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. The language is, is very similar to how Paul puts it here. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images like man and birds and animals and reptiles. What's the problem? Jeremiah goes on to describe that problem in verse 13. Jeremiah 2, 13. He says, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. That foolishness of exchanging the glory of the immortal God, the the true and living God, the God who is there, for these images made to look like man, made to look like animals, made to look like reptiles. The God who provides living water, the God who gives life for those things that are empty in themselves and provide only emptiness to those who follow them. See, the, the, the root problem here is that of idolatry. And idolatry can certainly involve a physical image, such as something made like a man or a bird or a lizard or a dragon. But it can also involve images in our minds, images of who we are, images of our own success, images of our own wealth, images of my having this, images of my having that. So idolatry can be something that is primarily something that is within a view of, of who I want to be and where I want to go and what I want to get that, that does not acknowledge God. Ultimately, idolatry is a problem of misdirected worship. 
It's worshiping the wrong thing. Idolatry is a problem of misdirected worship. We were made to know the immortal God, and we make this foolish exchange, trading off the God who gives life for all of these things that don't give life and that can't give life. That's why God's wrath is revealed. Because his people, his creation, all people, have turned from the God they were meant to know and exchanged his glory for that of idols of various kinds and therefore end up in futility and in darkness and for their rebellion under the wrath of God. He's talking here about you. He's talking about me. He's talking about all people, Jew or Gentile. This is our nature. This is who we are. And dear friends, this is bad news. That this is who we are and that we are, therefore, under the wrath of God. But it's against this dark background that the gospel shines gloriously. Remember earlier I said that word for, verse 18, indicates a connection with what went before. What went before? Well, the gospel. He talks about that the, power, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it's written, the righteous shall live by faith. Why is that important? Because the wrath of God is revealed. Notice the parallel. The righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel precisely because the wrath of God is revealed against us in our sinfulness and in our suppression of the truth. You see, it's in the context of that darkness, that futility, that death, that the gospel comes. That's why the gospel is not just more news. The gospel is the good news. Because in the face of his own wrath against our sinfulness, God made provision for that sinfulness in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why Christ is not optional. Something to consider. Maybe to try. Take him or leave him. We desperately need Christ. We desperately need that righteousness that is revealed, that is provided for us in the gospel of Christ. Because, dear friends, apart from that, we are under the wrath of Almighty God. Bad news indeed. But that's why the gospel is good news. Because it provides for us atonement for our sins in the cross and righteousness to clothe and cover us before God that we could never provide for ourselves. But atoned for by Christ, clothed in Christ's righteousness, we stand before God, not as children of wrath, not as those under the wrath of God, but those under the love of God, the blessing of God, the adoption of God forever. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you for the clarity of your word. Lord, we recognize that this creation all around us testifies to who you are. But, Lord, we thank you for the, the scriptures which make us wise for salvation, which testify to us of Christ. Father, by your grace, may we receive him. May his blood atone for our sins. May his righteousness cover us. Lord, we thank you for a Savior who suffered this wrath for us so that we wouldn't have to, so that we could receive the blessing and the life that he won for us through his obedience. And Lord, we give you all praise and pray for the spread 
of the knowledge of this Christ in us and around the world today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.